Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to finish Mark 4 this morning in one of my favorite little stories in the Gospels, and particularly in Mark. We're about to enter into a cycle of stories that we probably could title children's stories for adults. These are stories that we learned about as kids. They're stories that we saw about on the flannel graph. How many of you know what a flannel graph is? I've used that. Okay, good. Those of you who don't, just trust me. They were um, instructive to many of us uh, back in the day. But these are not just little kids' Sunday school stories. These were profound, historical, living, real events that truly happened. And we would do well to look deeply into them. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, now real quick, that was after he taught from the boat, told the parables. On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, his followers, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves, the waves were breaking over the boat. So much so that the boat was already filling up and taking on water. Jesus himself was in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind And the sea, obey him. Part of living in the American Midwest is dealing with weather and weather forecasts. I have several apps on my smartphone, more than I want to admit. And it's almost humorous how they can say completely different things. I showed my wife just a few weeks ago, 100% chance of rain... And it was raining outside. Switch the app. Zero percent chance of rain with a sunny sky on the app. I find it curious that um, uh, you watch three or four weather men or women on the nightly news and see how different they are and who is the most accurate drum roll that time. It is a curious 
issue, how all of these channels, isn't it funny that they all have as their beeline, Kansas City's most accurate weather. (laughs) Compared to who? (laughs) Ask any kid who goes to school about the predictability of weather forecasts when it might involve a snow day. Think of the recent projections. Remember we had that rash of hurricanes all making landfall and they would show the different pathways that the hurricane might make landfall? One meteorologist was honest enough to say, ultimately, predicting storms is a guessing game. Wouldn't you like to have that job? I'll just guess, throw a dart. In fact, one meteorologist I read this week honestly admitted, quote, Predicting the location and intensity of thunderstorms is like peering into a pot of boiling water and trying to figure out where the first bubble will pop and how big it will be, end quote. That gives me lots of confidence, doesn't it, you? Meteorologists do their best to predict the weather. And frankly, all of us are grateful for that. But never have I heard a meteorologist claim to be able to control the weather. In this passage before us, we come face to face with someone who not only controlled the weather, but spoke to it as if it was an an inanimate object, a living being, and it obeyed him. This account, by the way, you can also find in Matthew 8, 23 and following, and in Luke 22 and following, but there's far more detail here. Now, we said in the very beginning of our study that the gospel of Mark is probably really the gospel of Peter's historical remembrance, right? Mark would have gotten his information from Peter. And it makes sense that Peter, being a fisherman, would have a very keen memory of this event. And Mark records more events, more details rather, of this event than the other two synoptics. It would have been cemented into his memory, transferred to Mark's pen. How specific is he? For, For example, we see what time of day it was. We don't find that from the other apostles, the other gospels in verse 35. Verse 36, that the disciples took Jesus from the boat in which he was already sitting. We're told about the presence of other boats sailing with this one in verse 36. There's graphic detail that the boat was taking on water as a fisherman would describe it. We read in verse 38 with specificity that Jesus was sleeping not just in the boat, but on a cushion and where he was in the boat. Mark records the sarcastic tone of the confrontation of the Lord by the disciples in verse 38. And Mark records the detail of Jesus' rebuke in verse 40. This is indicative of an eyewitness. And he probably got his information from Peter. So far, Mark has highlighted some things about Jesus that that are critical to understand if you want to know and worship and love and be saved by him. He's talked about his authority in his teaching, his authority over demons, his ability and authority over sickness and disease, and even his authority to forgive sins. Here at the end of chapter four, he starts to shine a light on the miraculous authority that Jesus had over the creation because he actually is the creator I think that Mark would have you and me ask and let him answer 
by looking intently at Jesus, the same question these disciples ask at the end of the passage. Who then is this man? We could even say without any dramatization that that's the most important question that anyone could ever ask. Who is this man, Jesus? This narrative, I think, is a focal passage on the incarnation. Now, that's a big word for some people. The incarnation is God becoming a man incarnate, in flesh. God, when I was in junior high, I remember our youth pastor saying, God and abide. There's a lot of truth to that. God had corporeal flesh. He became a man born into this world. How do you see Jesus as man and Jesus as God? I really think, Mark, this is a transitional part in his, his telling of the story of Jesus where he's going to start creating that tension that the disciples will wrestle with until he's resurrected with the godness of Jesus and the manness of Jesus. How do we coalesce those things? What is the confluence of this man's nature, nature's? Well, let's outline it by really looking at who this man is by looking together at two conclusive indications of Jesus' true identity. Who then is this man? Mark answers by giving us two conclusive indications of Jesus' true identity. This first indication is in verses 35 to 38. Number one, an ordinary display of Jesus' humanity. An ordinary, regular, predictable, ordinary display of Jesus' humanity. Let's look at the text. On that day, verse 35, when evening came, now just let's set the scene. He's been teaching in this boat all day and we know as a, we'll find out in a minute, he's exhausted he had sat in this boat, pushed back from the shore. It was a perfect cove, like an amphitheater where he could teach the crowds with a, a great acoustic bouncing of his voice off of the, the lake up into the hillside. All day, and now it's getting dusky dark. It's getting evening. Evening came, and he said to them, this would be his inner circle, the, the disciples and other followers. We know there's other followers because there's other boats. Let us go over to the other side. Let's talk about what that looks like. Got a map up there. And if, if you can't read it, just, just uh, look, look at the big section. In the northwest was Capernaum, the northwest part of the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. He was going, as we'll see in the next chapter, next chapter to have a divine appointment with a man full of demons the next morning. And he was going to the land of the Gerasenes, which would have been in the southeastern portion of the lake on the shore. Now, remember, from top to bottom, the lake is about 13 miles. Looking at, at the, way the, the way they would have gone from the northwest to the southeast, probably about 12 mile or so boat ride. Most fishing during that day took place at 
night. Remember when Jesus meets the disciples? They had been fishing when? All night. And I bring that up to say Peter and the other men with him would have been very used to fishing at night, looking at the stars, knowing the lights on the shores. You could easily see from one side to the other. There would have been fires lit where little villages would have been. This, this was something with which they were very, very familiar. Traveling at night was not a problem. So leaving the crowd, stop right there. Isn't that interesting that most Preachers do everything they can to draw the biggest crowds they can. Jesus wants to get away from the crowd. In fact, he is going to leave the multitudes to deal with one man tomorrow morning. They took along with them in the boat, just took him along with them just as he was. Now let's talk for a minute about this boat. This would have been a, a boat probably, um, you know, uh, 25 to 30 feet long, six to eight feet wide, about five feet high. Uh, it would have had planking on the front, on the stern and the bow, and underneath they would put fishing tackle and fishing gear. If you've been to Israel and you've been to Capernaum, you know that in 1986, during a drought, the water level was very low. The hull of a fishing boat from the first century was recovered from the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles south of Capernaum. I've actually seen the remains of this boat in a museum. It was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. Mark includes this interesting comment. They took him along just as he was in the boat. I think that indicates that he didn't come into the shore. He didn't come back. He'd been teaching, teaching, teaching. They jump in the boat with him or they were already there with him and they set sail. He tells us other boats were with him. There's something attractive about that. Where are you going, Jesus? Go on the other side. Let's get a boat. These were his followers, not the fickle crowd then it happens. Then it starts in verse 37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. Lalaps, megale, animu. That's the Greek. And what it means is there's a double entendre there. A fierce hurricane force wind that was a great wind. And he uses the word mega. We still use that in our world today. Mega wind. This is a massive wind. This was category five kind of stuff. Sea of Galilee has been studied as one of the most violent lakes in the world when it comes to storms. One of the most violent freshwater lakes. Now what's important to note for this story is that these boats, as you saw, were small and open to the elements. No lower deck, no inner chamber, no doors to get inside. And to properly understand this, let's, let's look to a little weather background. Waves 
on the Sea of Galilee have been measured during severe storms to reach 10 to 15, sometimes 18 feet on a lake. Think about that. As we studied in chapter 1, the Sea of Galilee lies 700 feet below sea level. It's in a natural bowl surrounded by hills that are especially uh, precipitous to the uh, east and the eastern side. About 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, which tops off at 9,200 feet above sea level. Think about that. The, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's almost a 10,000 foot difference between that body of water and the top of Mount Hermon. That causes a collision, especially from the south, of warm air that rises from the Sea of Galilee, hits the air that's coming down from Mount Hermon, and causes storms for which that lake, even today, is still known for. As I said, this Greek word for fierce gale has been translated in other ancient documents when it's used of something in the ocean as a hurricane. open boat five feet high with potentially 15 to 18 foot swells and the disciples are panicking panicking and so would you and then the way Mark writes this is not humorous but it's just almost tongue in cheek. Fierce gale arises. Verse 38. Jesus himself. The Greek is reflexive and intensive. Jesus himself, pointing right to him, was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. Fishing boats of that time were curved at the bottom. As I said, they had decking over the stern and the bow underneath which you could put fishing nets and tackle. It created a space for storing the, 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 the tools of the trade of fishing. Stern, as I said, was at the back where there was typically a cushion, a large pillow, more like a, we would almost call it a mat for sitting or for resting. Most fishing was done standing on those decks, throwing out the, uh, the nets and gathering them back to bring the fish in a large cushion was there and Jesus found his way to the cushion laid down and was out how tired was the Lord this is shocking to me how tired was Jesus he was tired enough to go to sleep in an open boat taking on water in waves that are 10 to 15 to 18 feet high Bobbing and weaving. It, this is, I don't know that there's any great lesson here, but I do find it interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament, the only place in the Gospels where we, we have a record of Jesus sleeping. Now, I'm sure he slept most nights, not every night except the ones he stayed up all night. We saw one of those when he was praying all night. But this is interesting the only time we see Jesus sleeping is during a storm in an open boat. We can see the different attributes of Jesus' humanity in this interchange. 
We can see the different attributes of Jesus' humanity in his weariness. Listen, the Lord got hungry, the Lord ate, he was thirsty, he drank, he expressed sadness and joy, and here we find the Savior needing to sleep. So just, just, this Mark is intending for us to have this painted in our imagination. They set out, now they would have looked at the sky. I think this was a divinely ordained storm. These were fishermen. They would have looked at the sky, known the conditions, said, let's set sail, it's fine. They get out in the middle and it's not fine anymore. Jesus has crashed. He's asleep. And so, (laughs) this is an understatement, they woke him which is a little bit humorous to me. He was so sound asleep, he had to be wakened by people shaking him likely. Jesus, Jesus. We'll find out in a minute. The the boat's taking on water. He's probably soaking wet. And then they say, he gets up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. Now, one of the proofs of Jesus' humanity in this is that they talk to him and treat him like any other man. At this point in the story, they're not happy with their master. They go to the heart and express, listen, their suspicion and displeasure with with the care that Jesus would have for them. They knew he had some power. They knew he had some ability. They didn't see what was about to happen coming. And they weren't even saying, can you fix this? As much as they were saying, don't you care? We're all going down. Can't we have a goodbye? A few observations are important here. Again, these were experienced and seasoned fishermen and for them to be frightened to the point where they were saying we are perishing, we are dying. We're about to die. Indicated their assessment of the severity of the storm and the danger that they were in. (laughs) Their focus is do you not care that we... (laughs) perishing and don't miss the fact that they actually had to wake up Jesus indicating that I don't think Jesus was particularly worried that night this encounter and this conversation gives us a keen insight into his humanity as the disciples are getting to know Jesus better and better day and week after week They're seeing more of what he can do, what he can say, how he teaches, the perfection of his character. They're seeing the fullness of his humanity, but they're also starting to get glimpses that he is not like any other man they'd ever encountered. But they do respond to him here like they would any other man. Wake up! Don't you care that we're dying? They're afraid desperate in disbelief that their teacher is unconcerned about their welfare. And the subtle lesson here is that there will be many proofs of Jesus' deity, but don't miss this evidence of his humanity. He slept, he acted, 
fully human. And before they knew better, they actually treated him like he was just another man. He wasn't walking around with the halos of, of ancient art. His humanity was on full and ordinary display. Which brings us to the second conclusive indication of Jesus' true identity. Not only an ordinary display of Jesus' humanity, but number two, an extraordinary display of Jesus' deity. An extraordinary, beyond the ordinary, extraordinary display of Jesus' deity. So they wake him up. Let's look at, let's let's remember the. The storm is coming, the winds are coming, the waves are coming, the waves are crashing, the boat is open, it's taking on water. And he got up. And rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, hush, still yourself, be still. They wake Jesus up. He got up. That meant he sat up or he could have stood up on the decking. Even standing up in that, those waves, it's hard to imagine. Then he does something that I think they certainly didn't expect. He speaks not to them, that will come. He speaks to the weather. He talks to the lake. He confronts the wind. As God, Jesus engages his creation. This shouldn't surprise us. Remember how Genesis 1 informs us the creation came into being? And God, what? Said. Divine fiat, the speaking of God brings nature into existence and can control and manipulate natural forces according to his own purposes. This is a whole study in of itself. He made the Red Sea stand up like a pile. He stopped the earth from rotating for a longer day. God set the natural order of his creation into motion And God can suspend it for his own good pleasure when he desires. By the way, this is a, 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 I'm going to have to get you a little bit into some Greek language today. I hope that's okay. It's an unusual and unexpected, perfect, passive imperative. A literal translation would read, be still and stay still. Stop and keep stopped. It's Paris, just don't you think, wind and waves, you're going to have a second chance. You're done. He talks to the lake, talks to the wind, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. There's an important point in the original language that Mark is painting in the way he describes this calm. 
Galene, Megale. Mega, we heard mega a few minutes ago. Mega storm, massive storm, indescribably big storm, indescribably massive calm. Not a ripple in the water. Now put yourself in that boat for a second. Think of the sound of the wind, the water coming over the sides of the boat. Darkness from the clouds obscuring the stars. Rain probably hitting you sideways. Jesus says a sentence and the lake becomes glass. The stars become visible. The mega storm is resolved into mega calm. As perceptible as the storm was fierce, Peter must have told Mark, the calm was equally perceptively tranquil. Now, there's a lot of white space between 39 and 40. Um, can, can you just put your sanctified imagination and fix it on the faces of these men? From a, thinking they're about to drown to looking at absolute glass in the tranquil lake water. Who's going to speak first? Who will speak first? Verse 40, Jesus does. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Notice that Jesus sets up a most important synonymous relationship between the disciples' fear and cowardice and a lack of faith. The word that he uses here of afraid is different than we'll see uh, in the next description of fear. This is not phobia, general fear. This is cowardice. Why are you cowards? And he doesn't say, you're cowards because you're fishermen and you know the seas, you know the lake, you know how to do this. He said, you're cowardice, your faith is paralleling that because you're not exercising belief in God and having faith in the Son of God. Now, can we pull the car over for just a second? I, I don't want to over-devotional or devotionalize or over-spiritualize this text, except to say, I understand this personally. I was thinking about this encounter and, and, and reflecting back when I was studying this this week of all the times I've had fears. I've had fears of diseases and sicknesses. I remember going in for brain surgery for my Meniere's disease in 2002 and having a fear like what if, what if I let this guy put this needle in my arm and I wake up and see Jesus? What, what, I mean, I, I, there was, it was unsettling. Fear of threats to my safety and security. You hear something in the middle of the night. Fear of damage to my reputation. Fear of damage to people's thoughts of me and my character. Where does that come from? 
I think we have an insight where those fears come from, from what Jesus tells the disciples here. There is always a disconnect in the way we see a situation from the way God sees the situation and what makes it right or wrong is our faith. Jesus had given them enough revelation of himself that they should not have thought God has brought this man from Nazareth who's obviously speaking like the Messiah, acting like the Messiah, unlike anyone we've ever seen or heard before, performing miracles, casting out demons, forgiving sin. And their faithlessness said, and the, the Lord God in heaven is gonna bring us and him out in the middle of the lake and drop us to the bottom. Genius. Verse 41 is fascinating. Then they became not cowardice afraid, different fear. Now they became very much afraid. Phobon, phobias, megon, mega fear. Mark loves mega in this passage. Mega storm, mega calm, and now mega fear, massive fear. And he uses that. It, listen, he's saying as fierce and as ferocious, as massive, as intimidating was the storm, as instantly tranquil and quiet and glass-like sea was the calm, as intense as those were, they had a mega fear of Jesus. Third time in the narrative, Mark uses the term mega that we bring over into English. Just a little footnote, this will not be the last time these men experience fear and terror at the awesome power of Jesus. In the next narrative, chapter five, after seeing that Jesus casts out multiple demons from a, from a violent man, we read in chapter five, verse 15, they came to Jesus, observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the man who had the legion, the multiple demons, and they, the disciples, became frightened. So think about this. The storm gets calm, the threat is gone, then they fear. This dangerous demoniac has the demons cast out and everything is okay, then they fear again. And it's all related to Jesus. Mark 6, we'll study the account of Jesus walking on the same lake. He has an interesting relationship with, with the Sea of Galilee, a really interesting relationship. He's walking on the water, verse 50 of chapter 6. They all saw him walking on the water and they were terrified. So he has to say back to them, take courage. Mark 9, 6, we see the disciples terrified again when Jesus is transfigured and the three of the men, the, 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 the men he took up with him, Peter, James, and John, saw his glory. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Mark, they did not know what to answer for they became terrified after John was raised from the dead, Jesus was raised from the dead, rather, we find the same response to the Lord, Mark 16, 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. A real, a real 
encounter with the God-man, the man who was God, the incarnate Lord, to see him as he is in his humanity was for them to think we can rebuke him just like we would each other. To get a glimpse of him in his deity is to be terrified. So they become very much afraid and then, then they have a discussion with each other which could not have been private in such a small boat. And they say, who then is this? Who is this guy? A greater threat than the storm in the lake was the God-man in the boat. The Old Testament gives us insight into into this visual, this encounter with Jesus. Listen to how Psalm 107 describes the plight of sailors on the sea and their hope during a storm. Exact parallel. Psalm 107, verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on the great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord, his wonders in the deep, all the wonders of seeing animal life and the storms and the waves and the beauty and the sunsets and the sunrises on the sea. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind. The psalmist says, God raises winds, raises storms, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths, up and down and rolling tides. Their soul melted away in their misery. They revealed... They reeled, rather, it's talking about the sailors. They reeled around and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Doesn't that sound familiar? When they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he brought them out of their distress. Verse 29, he caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. I love verse 31. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, his faithfulness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Psalm 65, 7 says, 65, 7 rather says, still God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. So let's do some syllogism here, okay? God, God in heaven can cause and still storms. Jesus stilled the storm. Jesus is God. He does what only God can do. And would you notice something with me? In verse 38, the disciples treat Jesus like an unconcerned man. But in verse 41, they respond to him like the God of creation. The disciples' fear of the storm outside the boat was instantly surpassed by their new fear of the Lord in the boat with them. I mean, what would you say after that? 
nice job, Lord. I mean, what, what, what can you possibly say? I think they looked at each other and whispered, did you see that? Can you believe that? Who is this? They knew he was Jesus from Nazareth. They knew him very well. They weren't asking about his address. They were asking about his identity. Who is this man? Listen to James Edwards' insight on this event. I love this. The presence of the supernatural is more frightening to humanity than the most destructive of natural disasters. Jesus is still a stranger to his own followers, for they are better able to handle the possibility of their own death than the possibility of the presence of God among them. That's so well said. Can I just read that last sentence again? They are better able to handle the possibility of their own death than they are to handle the possibility of the presence of God among them. Wow. What do we do with this? What do we walk away with? How do we process this? This is just shotgun from my heart, okay? First of all, we need to recognize that Jesus is fully God and truly man. Fully God and truly man. This story tells us that he wasn't some floating apparition of the divine that they might understand or mistake rather as a man. They, saw, they knew he was a human. They saw his humanity. But they also recognized his deity because the nature itself bows the knee to his prerogative. So, right question is, can you answer the question that the disciples ask at the end of the story? Who is this man? Who is this? Something else, Jesus is in control over all nature and accessible by prayer to exercise his rule over it. Listen, they accused him of not caring, but when he got up, he took care right? Do you believe that Jesus, God through his son by the power of his spirit, do you believe Jesus, our divine trinity, can still exercise control over nature? And what I mean by that is, why do we pray for someone who has cancer if we don't believe that he can work at a microscopic level and destroy cancer cells? Why do people who I know who live in Africa pray that God would end the drought? He would send the rain. There's something intuitive about a Christian who prays to God and knows that he controls the macro and the micro dimensions of his nature to such extent that he can be entreated to exercise his control over them. The record of the word of God is really a record of people praying about their trials and troubles, especially related to natural forces and God answering their prayers. I think a third thing I walk away with here is the recognition of the connection between faith, rather fear rather, and faithlessness. Fear and faithlessness. 
any of our trials or struggles, could not the Lord himself come and say to us in the middle of it, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And you might be tempted to say, I have no reason, I have no reason, no objective, physical reason to have faith. And that's okay. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things that you cannot see. Do we really trust God and his care, his ability to rescue us from the things we fear most? Let me ask you that again. Like these disciples, can you see that adequate faith, bolstered faith, energized, spirit-fed faith can diminish fear of the circumstance and evaporate it into fear and worship of the Lord where there is a safe harbor? And lastly, just because we don't see and sense God's care does not mean he does not care. Do you think Jesus cared for those men in the boat? Of course he did. Of course he did. Because they didn't see and sense it didn't make it any less true. Uh, All of us, all of us could give testimony of how many times we have if not verbally, emotionally, in our heart, questioned and doubted the care of God because we see ourselves in difficult situations and wonder if he's forgotten about us. Maybe he's asleep on a pillow in the stern. He's never asleep. 